It says, and just learning about whatever's there. That's what we do at any museum, right? It, it sort of takes us back into a, a time and a place that, that's foreign to us, that's distant from us, people and things from that era. And that's what we're doing in Hebrews 11, what, what a lot of people call the hall of faith. There's a long list of people throughout human history up to this point who were proven faithful. And so we're stopping at each one. We're reading their plaque, finding where they are mentioned in Scripture and learning about them so that we can have the same sort of familiarity with them that the author expects his audience to have with them. And there's, there's good reason that he brings them up, uh, that, that he rolls out this long list of names. It's not because they didn't know who, who they are. He, they absolutely did. They knew exactly who these people were. And he's been trying to convince them that no matter what things look like now, no matter how hard life gets, there might be enemies at the gate, but there's a feast on the table. No matter how much you might be tempted to believe, there might be something better out there for you, some better path. There just isn't. Jesus is and always will be better. That's his message. Believe in him. Have faith in him. Keep faith in him. It will be worth it. And the way that he goes about proving that to them, that, that it'll be worth it. He says, just look at, just look at this list of people who, whose names you know, whose stories you've heard. They're already where you want to be, so go the way they went. Follow that same path. These are people who kept the faith until the end, and you can too. That's the encouragement. So we're going to learn their names and get familiar with their stories so that we can find that same encouragement that he intends for them. That's what we need to endure to the end and to receive all that God has promised to us, that endurance. So we looked at Abel first, didn't we? Just before Christmas, and then Elder David Campbell preached for us last Sunday from Luke, and now we're back and we're looking at Enoch, the faith of Enoch. And have you heard about Enoch before? I mean, before just then when I was on the steps with the children. <laughs> You've heard of Enoch, but what have you heard about him? Whether you know a little or a lot, hopefully we'll know him better by the time we're finished here this morning. And that'll be good, but here's what'll be better. For us to be able to say, I want faith like that. Because that's why he's mentioned here at all in Hebrews 11. That's what he's commended for. We want faith like Enoch had because Enoch walked with God, it says. So let's read Hebrews chapter 11, just verses five and six there. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. We thank you. We thank you, Lord, that your word, your self-revelation to us allows us to do simple math, that we can stand on the truth of your word, knowing that it is true because of your character, because of your goodness, because of your holiness. And Lord, I pray that you would allow me to be able to communicate your word clearly to your people this morning, that they may hear and that they may believe. 
In Christ's name, amen. All right, so Enoch didn't die the way we all do, right? And that's fun stuff. That's fascinating. He was taken up, it says. And before that, he was commended as having pleased God. That's interesting. All of this is a little bit out of the ordinary, isn't it? So let's flip back now to, to Genesis 5. And, and when you get there, you'll see this, this genealogy, okay? Uh, a record of Adam's descendants in Genesis 5. And Enoch pops up briefly in verses 21 through 23. But I want you to look at something before that. I'll give you just another second to turn there. Genesis chapter 5. Genesis is an easy one, right? First book of the Bible. Flip a few pages in. Past your table of contents. So look in there, um, at, leading up to verses 21 through 23, where Enoch is mentioned. You see, beginning with verse 6 there, with Seth. It says, he lived 105 years. He fathered Enosh. It says how long he lived after he fathered Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. Then it gives the total number of years that he lived, and then it says, and he died. You see that? Now look, every one of these names listed has that same formula. Here's the guy, lived so many years, fathered so-and-so, lived so many years after he fathered so-and-so, uh, had other sons and daughters, the total number of years he lived, and he died. I want you to look there at the end of each of those lines. You see that refrain? And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died, and he died, until we get to Enoch. And read beginning uh, at verse 21 there. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. Wait right there a second. That, that's already different, isn't it? That's, that's already breaking the formula. Everyone else, it just says he lived after he fathered whoever he fathered. Enoch, it says he walked with God. Now keep going. He walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not found, for God took him. Then it goes back to listing the names in its business as usual. And he died. And he died. If I could retitle this sermon, it would be Death Interrupted. We see the consequences of sin on full display right here, right? Everything God said would happen is coming true. And the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Not immediately, but your soul and body were meant to live on forever, and now they will not. Your body will not live on forever. You will die. You will live, and then you will die. So here it is, y'all, okay? We're not far from the fall we're not far from that, that tree yet in chapter 5. And here we see it already, the curse digging in its claws. The funeral dirge is beginning to play. One after the other, men are returning to the dust from which they were taken. Buried in the earth that they were supposed to have dominion over. The ground men were given to master now receives their worn out and lifeless corpses just swallows them up. Everyone on the planet is standing in line to the grave. 
The earth that was made to bring forth and sustain life for men now warehouses men's dead bodies. What was a source of life is now a tomb. And so we read these verses and three words ring in our ears, and he died. Inescapable consequences for sin. But there's an interruption in the funeral dirge. We see death interrupted. That's what Jesus does. We see it's possible, don't we? For a man to come out from under the curse of Adam, to break the chain. We see that there is indeed some other life beyond this one, an existence that's, that's not shackled by sin and decay. We see there's a place where God is and he can take us there. How? By faith. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. If you missed the first sermon in the series on verses 1 through 3, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. You can find it on our app. You can find it on YouTube or whatever. But um, we spent some time in that sermon qualifying what we mean by faith. Just briefly here, we said faith is not simply belief. You know, it's not just, just a generic belief in God. It's not even a belief in, in the right God. It's being sold out for God. It's complete trust and confidence and devotion and commitment to him. Seeing Christ as the only way of salvation and trusting in him alone for it. That's what we mean by faith. It can be a simple faith. It can even be a not-so-well-informed faith. You think of the thief on the cross. He didn't have a whole lot of time to, to get his theology straight, did he? But what kind of faith did he have? What kind of belief was his? He had an awareness of his own sin, a desperate longing for the approval of God and the knowledge that Jesus Christ was the only hope for him. Faith is believing he is who he says he is, believing we are who he says we are, and believing we are in need of his forgiveness and reconciliation with him, and that we can only have that through the blood of Jesus shed for us. That's how the curse of death is interrupted for us. I don't want to get too far into the weeds here on this, uh, but I know someone might, might hear that and might get a little confused and say, well, then why do we all still die, right? Because we do. If death has been interrupted for us, why is, it, what, you know, why is it then do we all die? And the answer, without going into a whole other sermon on that, is because sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. You, know, you think if someone steals a car and they go and they, they try to rob a store, but the owner of that store is a Christian and he shares the gospel with the robber, the robber gets saved right there on the spot. Do you think the cops aren't going to arrest him when he comes? Of course they are. But here's the deal, even though that man faces some consequences for his crime, his record is cleared in eternity. As he goes before the great judge, his record is clean because Jesus took the punishment for him. Those crimes are not counted against him. So while those of us who are trusting in Christ are truly redeemed and we can have that confidence, we still face a mortal death. But not even death will keep us down. That's the point. We'll be taken back out of the ground at the final resurrection. 
You know, when we talk about salvation, when we talk about how Jesus reverses the curse that was put on man, the curse of death, when we talk about how Jesus interrupts death, we have to realize we're not talking about escaping death. We're talking about Christ conquering death. Jesus didn't escape death, did he? No, but he conquered it. And so we won't either. We won't escape death, but we will walk right out of the grave because those who walk by faith follow Christ in his footsteps, and he left the tomb empty, didn't he? So that's the main idea this morning. Those who live by faith walk with God, and to walk with God, you must walk with Christ, following in his footsteps. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, that Enoch pleased God. In verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Okay, so can't walk with God, with God without drawing near to him first. And to do that, you have to have faith. Can't please him without faith, and he's not going to walk with you if you don't please him. So here's the problem. There's nothing any of you are going to do to please him. There's nothing you can do to please him unless it is offered by faith in the Son. Didn't we see that when we talked about Abel? Right? That God accepted his sacrifice because it was offered by faith in the Son. Whatever is offered by faith in the Son is acceptable to God. And it's clear that Enoch had that kind of faith, the kind that Abel did. He believed in the promises of God. He believed that God rewards those who seek him, like it says there. Believed the promise given in the garden that things wouldn't always be this way. A deliverer would eventually come who would put an end to sin and reverse the curse of death. Enoch walked with God, Enoch pleased God, and God took him. So that's what we're talking about, walking with God. So I want you to think for a minute. This is interesting as we think about Genesis 5 and what the world was like. Think for a minute about that. What the world was like, what life was like before the flood. When the sons and daughters of Adam were populating the earth like they were supposed to, we know sin was increasing, right? That's part of why the, the flood came. But I want you to consider what occupied people's time and thoughts then. Okay, no YouTube, no Facebook, no Instagram, no Netflix, uh, no, no factories to work in, right? What was occupying people's time and their thoughts and their minds then? The earth is still pretty new at this point. These generations that come from the, the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve are learning how to cultivate the earth, how to care for animals. They're also learning how to fashion weapons for protection because people are evil. But they're close enough to the beginning that they're not just learning how to live, they're learning how to connect with the spiritual realm. This gets really crazy, y'all, and I'd love to get more into it, but think of it this way, okay? There's evil in the world, isn't there? There's evil influence, influenced by evil beings, demonic influence, okay? If you're still stuck in a staunch rationalism that doesn't make room for that fact and the supernatural, I would welcome you this morning to wake right on up. 
Because reality includes those things we call supernatural. What we call supernatural are those realities that we aren't able to observe or understand completely, but which are real nonetheless. So we have to make room for that in our thinking. And here's what I want to suggest to you here this morning, and many scholars and commentators would agree, is that at this time, prior to the flood, there was a lot of observable supernaturalism. Okay? You with me? And it wasn't a good thing. Their awareness... Of, of it would have been greater than ours, if you can think of it that way. It was more on the nose, more obvious, and it wasn't a good thing. People were trying to connect with it, and they had two teachers, God and his messengers, his angels, and the devil and his. Now, you've got people aware of the spiritual realm. They're interested in tapping into it. There's a lot of wrong ways to do that, and there's only one right way. And while everyone is trying their own way, and allowing themselves to be tutored by evil, Enoch connected with God and was a student of God. That's the line he stood in. That's what faith does. We said at the beginning of the series, and we'll keep seeing it pop up as we go through, is that faith refuses to follow the world. It follows Christ even when it doesn't make sense, even when no one else does. And faith endures. It endures hardship and suffering, persecution, so what we have here is Enoch is an example of faith that's willing to stand alone, isn't it? It's, a, it's an example of faith that's willing to stand alone. He followed God at a time when nearly no one else did. Things were getting pretty bad at this time, just a, a downward spiral. And Enoch preached prophetically against the evils in his day. He saw all the ungodliness among men and preached against it, against his own family. That couldn't have made him very popular. Certainly well-known, but not known for perhaps the, the reasons that make, things, uh, make him comfortable company to keep. Preached against sin and ungodliness, even to his own family. You might say, well, where'd you get that? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that he preached anywhere in Hebrews 11 or even in Genesis 5. I'm so glad you asked that. You should ask that question. That's a great question to ask. One you should always ask. Where is that in the Bible? And the answer is in Jude. If you want to flip there, you can. In the book of Jude, Jude only has one chapter. It's right there before the book of Revelation. And Jude brings this up there. If you look at verse 14, I'll give you a second to turn there if you want to check it out. Jude, verse 14. Here's what it says. It says, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Okay, so there you go, Enoch the preacher, warning everyone in his time that the Lord sees their ungodly deeds and their flirtations with evil and evil forces and judgment awaits them if they do not turn from their evil ways and turn to him and to pursue him. Enoch is referred to there in, in Jude, if you notice, specifically as the seventh from Adam in Jude. And that's significant. Okay, he's not the bad Enoch. He's the good Enoch. There's another Enoch. He's not the third from Adam and the line of Cain. He's the seventh from Adam and the line of Seth. We've got good Enoch, bad Enoch. There's an Enoch that belonged to the devil, and there's an Enoch that belonged to God. There's the devil's family, and there's God's family. 
and there's enmity between them. Didn't God say that would be the case? Didn't God say in the very beginning when he gives that first little hint of, of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 when he says that the, the seed of the woman, that the Redeemer would come from the seed of the woman, that he was going to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent? There's enmity between them. Walk righteously as Enoch did. That's the message here. There's an alternative. You can walk in the way of Cain, but that way leads to death. Death is interrupted for those who walk by faith in Christ as Enoch did. There are two families, God's and the devil's. And know, just know, that you're going to bump into each other. There's going to be friction there. That's to be expected. Enoch preached prophetically that the Lord would come in judgment in his day. And he did. A flood came. And he preached against the ungodliness of the culture around him. We see in Genesis 6 that, that downward spiral, that the wickedness of man was so great in the earth that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. That was the condition of man. There would have been a lot of, um, you know, if you just imagine what that looks like, I keep using this word ungodly, there would have been a lot of sexual promiscuity at this time. Sexual perversions, people figuring out what their bodies could do and how to derive pleasure from the flesh, abandoning God's natural design for their bodies. They would have been involved in, in what we would call now occultic practices, right? That tapping into the, the divine, uh, trying to, to, to connect with the divine and the supernatural, being tutored by fallen angels on how to connect with the supernatural. There would have been theft, there would have been lying, there would have been hatred, murder, war, Envy, rape, child sacrifice. Any of those we don't have today? Mad, mad world. Think through that list again. Is there sexual promiscuity and perversion in the world today? Are people calling out to the darkness for a sense of the supernatural? Through psychedelic drugs, through witchcraft, through the occult? Are we not surrounded by thieves and liars? Do you lock your doors at night? Aren't there so many wars we can't keep count? We don't even know where, when they begin and when they end. Can't keep track. There's murder, rape. And yes, even child sacrifice by the millions every year. The ground is sick with the blood of unborn children crying out to God for justice. I want to share this quote with you from James Montgomery Boyce. If you've never heard of him before, he was a stalwart 20th century theologian, Presbyterian minister. He comments on how we just call sin by different names you know, today in order to make it more acceptable and less serious than God says that it is. Here's what he says. We call sin failure, or we say we've made a mistake. We call pride self-esteem. We call selfishness fulfillment. We call lust an instinct. 
If we cheat in business, we call it protecting our own interests. If we commit adultery, we call it an attempt to save the marriage. We call murdering an unborn child terminating a pregnancy. What hypocrites we are. How offensive we must be to God, who is obviously not taken in by our reinterpretations, but who calls sin, sin, and evil, evil. End quote. Preach against ungodliness and preach the judgment of God. The world needs warning even today. The world needs warning. But there's a lifeline. There is a lifeline. That's how all warnings work. It's only a warning if there's a possibility of escape. Otherwise, it's not a warning. There's a way of an escape. Anyone who's living in that, uh, present company included, right? I can't read minds. I can't read hearts. The Holy Spirit knows. I know we're all here this morning. I know we're all here because we say that we are Christians. I'm not doubting your profession. But I have to tell you, on the authority of God's Word, examine yourself. If you have not repented of your sin and looked to Christ alone for the salvation of your soul, today is the day. Don't, don't wait another minute. You're not, you're not promised another minute. You must repent of your sin and turn to Christ and live. Enoch had, right? Maybe he hadn't before he fathered Methuselah. We don't know for sure, but what we do know is Genesis 5 says he walked with God after he fathered Methuselah, and for 300 years? Enoch walked with God for 300 years, a lifetime. It wasn't over quick. We need to know as Christians, we need constancy and endurance, not a one-time profession, not a mood that struck us. There's a sense of that constancy in the Hebrew where it says Enoch walked with God continually, constantly communing with God, staying close to him, staying by his side, wanting to be where he was and never leave. And God granted him the desires of his heart, didn't he? He just took him. He pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We should hear that as Christians and say, I'll have what he's having, right? I'll have what he's having. I want faith like that. Shut up and take my money. How much does it cost? And the answer is you, your life. That's what it takes. A lifetime of faithfulness. But we want short-term commitments, don't we? We don't, we don't want to overcommit. We don't want to get tied up into anything too heavy. Be, be bound to anything, because who knows what could happen. But Christians require endurance. Isn't that what the author of Hebrews has been telling them all along? Hasn't he been telling them, you, you need to have endurance? That's what's required. Endure until the end. Persevere. Keep going. We can, we can begin catching what he's throwing here, can't we? 
We need Christian men and women, counselors and teachers, lawyers and judges, magistrates, mothers and fathers who are steady and faithful and constant in their walk with Christ and immovable when the resolve is tested. That's what we need. It's the most important thing your life can be about. Come see me after if you've got one that's, that tops the, that list. Something more important that your life could be about. It's the most important thing our lives can be about. And you can't do it, right? You can't do it while always trying to accommodate yourself. What that means is if walking with God is attractive to us, sin isn't. Walking with God means opposing sin. You can know if you're not walking with God because sin just doesn't seem so bad to you. It's a good indicator. If anyone wants to think he walks with God, he has to grow in holiness. And to grow in holiness, you have to cling to Christ. And you can't cling to Christ while holding on to sin. You can't bring sin with you where Jesus is leading you. Those who live by faith walk with God and to walk with God, you must follow Christ. Sin can't come too. You have to know what it is. You have to call it by its name. You have to kill it. To quote an old, old, old theologian, John Owen, he said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. We don't talk like that anymore, do we? It seems like you just don't hear that. that much. We don't like talking about sin and, and, and holiness in church. I mean, we do at King's Church, and I pray we never get timid about it. But a lot of churches do. They get shy about talking about holiness because it, it, tends to, it, it tends to thin the herd. You know what I mean? But Jesus did that a lot, didn't he? You know, you read in the Gospels, you, know, all the, you had big crowds come together, got down to small crowds real quick, didn't it? As soon as he started talking about holiness. Everyone wanted to follow the miracle man until he said, if you really wish to live, you must come and die. Die to yourself daily. The invitation to follow him was to come and to die. Lost some folks on that way, saying that sort of thing, sort of thinned the herd. But that was the invitation. Anyone who wishes to follow me, he must take up his cross. Nobody wanted the cross. You know how crazy that sounded? Hey, it's a good thing we're doing over here. Take up your cross, follow me. Y'all, bodies writhing in agony, hanging on Roman torture devices, crosses, haunted children's dreams. Do you think anybody wanted that? What is this man saying to me? Take up my cross? Who would do that? Only someone who knew his worth. Only someone who knew his worth and that God rewards all those who seek him. Not a popular message. But holiness was never very popular. But faith refuses to follow the world. It follows Christ even when it doesn't make sense. And faith endures suffering and persecution. It expects opposition. You know, I remember when I was, I was really young, like knee-high to a grasshopper. My mom was dragging me through a crowd in a, in a really crowded train station, super crowded. We were leaving from Florida, Cocoa Beach, Florida, to go up to Lima, Ohio, to visit my grandparents for Christmas. 
And I just remember being real little and just holding onto her hand for dear life because it seemed like everybody else was moving the opposite way. We're working our way through the crowd and it's like that sea of people just wanted to sweep me away with them. And that's the Christian life, y'all. It is very much upstream. If you find yourself coasting in your Christianity, you can know you're probably going the wrong way. The faith the Hebrews are instructed by the author to have and the faith we're all to have as Christians living in the 21st century today is a faith that holds on tight to Christ and refuses to let go. They're not headed in our same direction. The world's not. We're, our direction is Godward, heaven or bust, right? And anything that impedes our path, anything that would slow us down, Anything that would distract us from our walk with God should be laid aside, shouldn't it? Shouldn't we be willing to do that? Shouldn't we be willing to lay aside whatever might hinder us and impede our progress in that? Which means, too, we'll probably be a nuisance to a lot of people who have no desire to walk with God. People don't like seeing holiness on display because they think, Regardless of your intentions, they think your holiness is like a show, right? Oh, you're holier than thou. Like you're trying to be better than me. No. <laughs> I, 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 there's no good in me. It's for the goodness of my king and my service to him that, that you see whatever righteousness that, that, that you're observing in me, whatever fruit you observe in my life. All the glory belongs to him, Right? We should, as much as we are able, we should grow in favor with God and with men. The Bible says so. But when it comes down to a choice between the two, we must please God and not men. And Paul say that? When it comes down to a choice between the two, we always must side with God, be willing to stand in that line to please God rather than men. And one of the things we're required to live by faith, um, to walk with God like, like Enoch did, one of the things we need is holiness. We have to recognize that. That's why we take the time to talk about it here. You can't walk with God without it. You want to walk with God this morning? Do you want to know that, that, that nearness to him? You're not going to have that apart from holiness. And you can't have holiness without Christ. Can't have holiness without Christ. There has to be a submission to the direction he's leading you in, right? You can't, he, he can't decide, okay, we're going this way. And then you're like, well, I, I'm with you, but I'm going this way. No, you're not. You're not with him. You, know, you, you have to submit to the direction that he's leading, not, not resist him at every turn, okay? Not, you can't say, uh, yes, I'm going his way and then go your own way. You can't say, I prefer his ways and then really actually prefer your own. Walking with God means walking by faith in Christ, trusting in the Lord with all your heart and leaning not on your own understanding, Proverbs 3, 5. That's what it looks like. Not following them in, insofar as you're able to kind of comprehend everything and understand it yourself and it makes perfect sense to you. No, faith follows Christ when it doesn't make sense, when you have to lean not on your own understanding. That's when faith is required most, isn't it? Being faithful, following when it's hard, especially when it's hard. That's where your faith is stretched and tested. Faith refuses to follow the world even when it looks good, even when it looks better. We still say, no, Jesus is better. 
Jesus is better. Faith also endures hardship, persecution, and suffering, even though we'd rather avoid it. Enoch had faith like that. Enoch lived by faith and not by sight. When he had every reason not to, to walk with God, to trust in him, he still did. He was taken up and did not see death. Says he was not found for God took him. I'd imagine people probably were looking for him, don't you? You know, you think about that? Where'd he go? Somebody kill him? Can't find a body anywhere. Where, where'd he not go? You seen him? Just disappeared. I bet they were happy about it. No more prophetic noise from his lips. No more warnings. No more of this droning on about God's judgment and how he's angry with all of us for our sin and our unrighteousness. That wasn't a favor to the wicked that God removed his prophetic voice from the earth. It was a judgment against him. What they needed to hear most, they would no longer hear. And they couldn't have imagined what was coming for them. Death and judgment. Just as it is, is it appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Remember we read that in Hebrews 9? So Christ, you've got to finish the rest of the sentence, right? You can't just camp out there. You can't leave it there. God doesn't leave it there. It's all absolutely true. Don't believe anyone who tells you it's not. There's death and there's judgment waiting for you. But it doesn't end there. The rest of that sentence in Hebrews 9 goes on. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Death interrupted. That's what Jesus does. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. God took Enoch, body and soul, to be with him where he was because it was clear to God and anyone who knew Enoch, that's where he wanted to be. Enoch was a testimony from God that those who walk with him in this life will walk with him through eternity. That there is a better and more complete life and a more complete and better place than life in this one that is weighed down with sin. Those who live by faith, like the author is saying, walk with God and to walk with God, you must be continually near to him and have that intimacy with him. And in order to have that, you must follow Christ, not just initially, not one time, and not just for a little while, not until something better comes up or you get tired or worn out or disappointed, forever, forever. Constancy and endurance, that's what we need. That's what the author has prescribed the Hebrews here. That's what the divine offer prescribes to us this morning. Have faith, keep faith, it is worth it. Keep going. It is worth it. I know we can all be kind of quiet in church. I don't really know. I don't know if this is like, if this is clicking. 
Can't really tell. That's okay. Right? You don't, you don't owe me any sort of reaction or anything. But I don't know. I just want to know. Is that music to your ears this morning? Is that music to your ears? I know I've talked with a lot of you, and in the past year or so, it's been really hard. It's been a lot. It's been a lot to handle. Stretched you, uh, tested your faith. Isn't that good news? That it's not for nothing? That a great reward awaits the faithful who persevere to the end? Doesn't that give you the steam you need to hold on and to not let go? Cling to Christ, stay close, trust in Him, follow Him, walk with God by faith in Him, and don't ever stop, don't ever look back. It is worth it. Ask Enoch. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Let's pray.